test. We did the mics right. We did it. <laughs> took a minute. It took a minute. We're new. We're new. We're new. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to get to sit down with you. I just, uh, I can't believe um, just really the opportunity to be able to sit down with such an incredible author, with such a remarkable um, book. If everyone has not read it, please, please get your copy in hand. Um, you're joining us in Spokane. Have you ever been here before? Um, as a child, I haven't been here in many, many years. And I was just uh, telling my partner when we arrived early this afternoon, I was like, wow, I haven't been here since I was a kid. And we walked around downtown, like checked into our hotel, and I was like, Spokane is cute. <laughs> like, our hotel is beautiful. And like, it just, yeah, um, so it's been a long time, but I'm, I'm into it. Yes, it's, um, it was a best kept secret. It's no longer best kept secret, as we can see from the housing prices. But yes, welcome, <laughs> welcome, I'm glad you're here. Um, oh my gosh, I we got a chance to visit a little bit um, before. They had to break us apart. They had to break us apart, it's true. If you were in the VIP room, I apologize, I hogged the star. Um, but I, I, what I really appreciated was, um, well just now, the little bit of the mashup in our two works. Um, and just some of the like zine kind of starters of, of what we've created, this sort of DIY approach. And so I would love, I'm going to queue up into a few questions here soon, but I would love at first just to hear like, what was it like to be able to do something that winds up looking like this as opposed to work in the Xerox machine and like cutting and gluing and pasting something to create sort of a paper creation that you're going to be selling with other merch while you're on the road. Right, and um, for those of you who were not backstage with us, like, I got so excited hearing about your own journey and your book and how you had done like the like sandwich fold zine and all of a sudden just everything started firing off in me. I was like, oh, this is a kindred spirit. So like to know that like that's how it started, like right, uh, the DIY do-it-yourself like mentality of, you know, I created a zine while I was doing an artist residency in Seattle because the director of the program kind of said, you can do whatever you want. And I was like, wait, really? And they're like, yeah, I said, like, make a zine if you want to. And I was like, oh my gosh. Uh, they're like, here's the paper. And then, like, and here I was, like, post grad school, uh, cutting and pasting. And, like, you know, it was just this very kind of rough, uh, put together thing. And then to have that, um, a, my book of poetry is coming out next year with Milkweed. And it started as this little staple zine. And I did take it on the road. And I, you know, sold it for two bucks or traded it for another band's merch. And um, to know that that will kind of be a book in the world is something that you know about too. And that's so exciting to me. Absolutely. Yeah. I just love that. Um, you had mentioned that sort of you still had a copy of your own, but it's like that dog-eared sort of like been stuffed at the bottom of the backpack version, and that's me as well, where I'm like, baby speak Salish, I'm like, the original zine, I'm like, I, I think I have part of that somewhere, so that's beautiful. Well, I want to be able to ask you some questions about your book, and I really had to work to not have too many like spoilers, and you're going to get to enjoy a reading um, as well, but we're going to start off with a little bit of discussion, um, and one of the first questions that I had was really specifically um, something that struck me is this piece around this ancestral autobiography and I was like oh I like ooh ancestral autobiography I like that I like that um, and it seemed to me sort of like wow that's like that could be a genre in and of itself so tell me what that genre would be and um, and yeah and tell me sort of what what um, what else you would like to see other artists put out in the world in that genre right, um, and 
I think that it's a wild title, right? The Ancestral Autobiography. It is kind of wild. It's like, what, what exactly is that? Um, and I think for me, when I think of the word uh, autobiography versus memoir, autobiography usually sort of points to uh, the, the, the lived experiences of a person of interest or a historical. It's literally a retelling of like, you know, their lives, like born, lived experiences, like all of that. But it's usually like a historical figure, or a celebrity, a person of interest. That's why we read them, right? Because they're so interesting. And then versus a memoir is like zooms in on deeply personal like moments, right? Something the writer has gone through, something the writer has like grown from. And so I knew that my book existed somewhere in the middle. Like I couldn't, it couldn't just be a memoir and it couldn't be just autobiography. The ancestral autobiography allows it the space I think it needed to to be my own story as a, a Coast Salish woman, as a survivor, um, and it's in there, but rooted with it is the, are the stories of my ancestors and the women of my family, and I knew that it was also um, their story as much as mine. And so ancestral autobiography kind of allowed the space to dip into their stories and then come back to my own narrative at times. And I want to see way more books like that. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know, like, it's something that I get excited about where it's like sharing your experiences, particularly like something that was challenging, but also um, the experiences of the folks who came before you and, and how you walk with that through the world, I think can be really, really uh, moving. And so I want to see more ancestral autobiographies. I hope more come. I do too. And I really thank you for like making that invitation. Because I feel like even just um, putting it out there into the world as this sort of, as you know, you've named it the ancestral autobiography. It is this invitation for other writers to frame it in that way. And I think there are many like super rad Native authors who've definitely recognized or have brought in um, the ways in which their story is the story of the previous generation, the generation before that, the generation before that, and the ways in which there's something you want to be able to move towards in terms of how that generation, the next generation and on, really can can then interact with that story and the healing that goes on along the way. Right, I think that as um, Native authors and artists, um, it's impossible not to, to like include that, you know, as like our identity, part of like what we've I don't know, I mean, now I'm speaking for my own personal self, but like, it would be impossible to tell this story without telling theirs as well. Yeah. Well, I want to recognize too that something as Native authors that I like really, um, and just as Native people, that I feel like I didn't get to tell you backstage is just that I've had so much respect for your family for a long time because I lived over in Seattle and I had the absolute pleasure of just on a couple occasions getting to meet your great-great-grandmother. Um, and when uh, when I was a student, we were working really hard to bring um, Tuffley Walls, the, the intellectual house, to campus. And she was a monumental elder in being able to make sure that that happened, but happened in the right way and that we had the right name for it. Um, and so uh, she just was such a patient person with kind of all of us kids that then were sort of really looking to her for how we needed to be able to carve that space out. 
in an institution. So I just want to say that there's there's some connections there. That's so amazing to hear. Also, like just love hearing about uh, the work that she did outside of just what I directly experienced. Like. Um, Patient. She was a patient woman. She was also a total badass, you know. One hundred percent. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. I have my little notebook here. I write in a journal every day, and that happens to be where my questions for you also live. So I love that. I will open it up. Um, so my next question is, um, you know, in your book you introduce us to three really powerful female ancestors. Uh, and you bring us to the very places that they lived. Um, you bring us, like, really the sense of place is so strong in your writing. So, like, I felt like I was there on the beach, you know, just, like, hip deep in water with your great-great-grandmother or being able to see through the eyes of Kamsha. Um, and, and to the river um, that Susie would go to. So tell us how these stories became so real and so present for you, and what the process of recreating these moments for an audience of readers was like. Also, I love this question. I loved all your questions. But um, this one, too, because of it being so so place-specific, um, that I think for uh, a lot of the times, and in the book, you know, I, I think I only go to conscious ones, but um, it's a place that I return to so many times. I went back again and again in the container of red paint. I think I only include one memory of going back there, but it's a place I visited um, many times, as well as the Skagit River, the Nooksack River. Um, and these places are places that I, I would return to physically, but also having moved away to go to college in New Mexico, and then later to you know travel, go on tour, um, visit my partner in California. Whenever I'm away, these places are, are so, they're still in me. I'll dream about them. I literally dream about them. And so I think it comes from a place of having physically been to these sites, like standing in front of Kamsha's home, walking around Cape Disappointment and Dead Man's Cove. Um, they're just such, it's such a visceral memory for me every time I'm there when I go back to where I grew up in Swinomish um, being at, I think I talk about it in the book too, but there's this sort of the, one of the it, it's what I feel the most homesick for whenever I travel, but when there's um, the forest pushed up right against like the tree line, right against the ocean, like right against like a gray stony beach, I, I dream of that again and again, and so those places show up on the page as physical characters characters almost. Um, I think I totally derailed from answering that, but... <laughs> no, I think you're there. I mean, they're physical characters because these are, like, these are relationships. These are really deep relationships that you have in your lifetime, but also that go so many generations back, right? I mean, we're talking about the places not just um, that belonged to people in your family, but the places they belonged to, right? So there's just, there's this real relationship. I think it's so present in your writing. And I think too that uh, some of it comes from like that, yes, I grew up going to these places and I, I went again and again, but I think I can also speak to like the research part of it when I went into um, going in, physically going to, I got a small grant to go to El Waco, to go to like the Chinook region where Kamsha lived and like, a ton of extensive research about uh, my mom gave me a ton of the uh, our family like she had a, a big folder for me that was full of like letters and 
correspondences between um, ancestors and old newspaper clippings and then falling down a rabbit hole of like historical texts that were oftentimes kind of a bummer, but then being able to place those with um, my physical memory of these places is kind of what, did, did I answer it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, and also I'm just like, I love the way in which it's sort of like you, you know, you have, you know, you have family that, you know, your great great grandmother like traveled this river, went up and down. It's just sort of like, as you're cruising I-5 and as you're, right, like you're like on the Black River of just like going up and down and really moving in the same patterns. Um, in your lifetime as well. Very cool. Just so cool. Um, so as a Coast Salish punk, is there anything you've learned about your ancestors or learn um, in traditional stories um, that has made you think that's, that's so punk? Definitely. And this was one of the questions when I was looking over them. I was like, can me and this person please be friends? I'm like, this is the best question. <laughs> yeah, please. And this is so wild because I never thought of it, which seems so, like, I never actually considered that, and I think it was a really exciting um, thing to, to ruminate on. But absolutely, I think growing up with my great-grandmother um, and seeing all of the work she did, the language revitalization work, to me reads as a kind of activism, right? And to see the, how she worked so hard to sort of like literally challenge an erasure, an attempted erasure of, of language and of culture, that is so punk. Um, and, Woo! Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, doing things like I think back in uh, when I was in my early 20s, she commissioned a symphony. Um, and had some folks being like, oh, you know, we don't know if this is a good idea. You know, my great-grandmother was in her 80s at the time, and she was like, I don't care. And she called up this composer and said, hi, uh, I'd like you to commission a sym this symphony. And the composer said, I'm really busy, that sounds really interesting, but I, I don't think I can do that. And then for two weeks afterwards, this composer couldn't get my great-grandmother's voice out of his head and caved and said, all right. And my great-grandmother being kind of this bossy, old, you know, amazing powerhouse of a woman got her way. Like, they told her no, and she was like, no, no, no. I mean, there's nothing more punk than that, you know. Uh, sort of challenging these. And on a deeper level, too, like growing up, um, to consider all of the things that she worked so hard to preserve, like language and stories and culture in the face of, you know, settler colonial trauma and challenging these, like, you know, systems of oppression and control, like, that was pretty punk. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think of, like, her time on the UW campus, and there's this sort of, like, crawling to the very, like, heart of a monster and being like, you will listen to me and there will be space for me here. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, I'm glad you liked that question because I, I also in reading like there was just different like when you talked about the decept like deception pass and um, there there is a story there that is something that has been an inspiration to you as well where I was just like that's so punk like I've never heard of this I've never seen this amazing carving yeah. but yeah I remember the day my great grandmother told me that story for the first time I was six and I was obsessed with the Little Mermaid like 
painfully obsessed. And I was telling her, I think I sat her down, and I was like, you're a storyteller? Me too. And I sat her down and play by play told her the entire Disney, like the songs and everything. And you know, you mentioned her being a patient woman, and wow, she really was, because she listened to all of it. And then she turned to me and she goes, you know, we have our own story of a sea maiden. And she told me the story of the maiden of deception past. Deception Pass, and it blew my brain, right? I was just like, oh my god, like, and then I immediately became very enamored with this story. Also, very, there's some punk in there, you know, there's a defiance, and also for a, for a greater cause. And yes. it's like, um, if those of you who don't know the, the story of the Maiden Deception Pass, you should, you should find it and, and enjoy it. It's incredible. And even just, this question got me so excited, I've been thinking about it for yeah, two yeah. days. Oh, please, feel um, free to add on. And then, <laughs> yeah, feel free. I think the last thing I'll say about it is even just uh, yesterday, I'm working on some essays and uh, that, again, require me to dig into research and like pull out the big folder and pull out my great-grandmother's books. One of them, um, Habu, is a collection of uh, Coast Salish stories and legends that she had transcribed to English. And at the very end of the book, I found this like sneaky little story that, that just really uh, rattled me in a good way um, called Wild Blackberries. And it was this just a few lines long just about um, the wild blackberries, how they used to be pale in color and bitter. And basically, I mean, I don't need to tell you the whole story, but uh, it was about like sort of a thwarted romance and the, the passion and the, the, the longing shown down on the blackberries. I closed the book and I was like, that's punk. Like, that's feminist. <laughs> like, you know, it was so, it, it still shows up. Oh, it shows up and it sounds like we need to also like go to a few other books that have been created by people in your family too, so you yeah. to learn more, for sure. Um, my next question, uh, so your uncle Ron, also plays a really important role in your story. And actually, this is another little, like, um, me being a really big fan of your family, um, because I took a Pacific Northwest, um, what, what was it? Native Art of the Pacific Northwest course. And so his work was featured in that class. Um, and some of that was, you know, he's an artist known for depictions of longhouse dancers, which also, like, I have to hit pause and be like, I love your sort of, like, it's not this necessarily, but your like intellectual property, like at the beginning of this book, being able to sort of say like, I have gone about understanding what's appropriate to share and what's not appropriate to share. And if anyone asks of me to share something that's not appropriate, like, nope, I know where the lines are. And so, I, first of all, I really like that. Okay, unpause, unfreeze. Um, so he had these depictions of longhouse dancers. Um, and something that I'm not sure anyone else has really depicted, like that was my first um, like knowledge of it. Um, and he had a really good reason to do so. He had purpose in it. And at the same time, some would say he took a really big risk in doing that. And I'm sure that that was challenging in his lifetime. Um, what are the risks that you took in your healing process and in writing this book? And what kind of guidance and support did you have around those decisions? When thinking of my uncle Ron and thinking of those beautiful like paintings um, and their intensity and their you know they're really large they're they're in my living room now and um, I I have to admire like and I love that you brought this up because it's a really good parallel right of um, I think when he 
set out to do those paintings, he talked to my great-grandmother first. And in a similar way, I went to my parents when I first finished the draft of Red Paint, before I let editors read it, or um, even friends or trusted readers. I gave it to my parents because I knew that I had to. And they, they knew that I was working on a project, they knew what it was about, but I sort of brought it to them and said, I need you guys to read this, and, and they did. And my mom definitely highlighted some areas where she was like, no you need to take that out. And I did without question, right? I was like, oh, okay. And we talked it out and I was like, that makes sense. I totally, I, I get it. And then later it was interesting to see, a, you know, certain mentors or editors, you know, going through trying to help edit. And they were like, you know, you're really vain right here. Uh, can you go into that? And, I, and it was often difficult to kind of push back against and go, uh, no, I can't, and then they push a little bit. Well, I think the reader needs to understand. I was like, do you want to get my, my mom on the phone right now? <laughs> like, she will shut this down. And so I think having that accountability and that responsibility to, to know that I had to go to my parents and to at least share it with them and to listen to them when they said that what, what would be respectful and what wouldn't, and to really um, have that as part of my writing process throughout the editing. Yeah, didn't wait to answer that one. What a gift. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, what a gift to have your parents potentially easier for an anonymous audience to then face that as opposed to like here's my family here's my parents and this is like this is what I'm bringing into the world right I feel like too I gave my parents like such a tremendous um, assignment right in doing so and my mom she was like I need to read it first and I was like I know and then to think about that that assignment that like ask that I was making like can you make sure that I am not going out of my lane but then to also consider them as my parents and to be like, oh yeah, FYI is kind of a bummer, maybe. You know, that was a really, and my parents are incredible and they are fierce and super strong, but they definitely were like, your book was very hard for us at times. And I was like, I know, thank you. <laughs> thank you for reading it. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for being a witness to it, right? And that's, I mean, like, I feel grateful just to get to bear witness to your story, too. And that's, like, that's a responsibility in our communities, bearing witness. Um, and it's something that I think you've written something that can bring so much strength and so much meaning as people are really looking back through their family histories as well as making sense of just their own lived experience. So I just, oh, thank you. I just think it's beautiful. That's the hope. Um, okay, this is kind of the last of my questions that I have written out here, uh, but I love getting to visit with other Native authors, or honestly just other Native folks in general, about favorite authors, favorite books that are out there, and sort of your suggested reading. Um, and yeah, I want to, and I know you're teaching as well, and you've taught a good deal, and so what are your, what are your like, must be on your indigenous bookshelf. I have like a color-coded, things got weird in the pandemic. I color-coded my books too. Yes! It looks phenomenal. It, it looks so, so pretty. It's so satisfying. It's an art installation in my, in my office. Yeah. yeah, 
totally. I have like there's some baskets and then yeah. just a yeah. rainbow. Yeah. Okay, so we, we're on the same page. We're still gonna be best friends. That's great. I'm really excited about that. But what what are your like big recommendations? It was funny when I was d discussing this uh, with my partner. I was like, and this one, and this one, and this one, and they kind of said, well, Sasha, I think that you were only asked for three. And I was like, oh, right, right. So this is obviously something I get very excited about. But I think it's impossible not to think of Native authors that I, I really love and admire and take a lot of inspiration from without thinking of um, Deborah Erling Magpie. Yes! <laughs> Why do I know each other before now? Well, all right, we can go. Our trip. Yeah, from our trip. Yeah. Summer's looking good. But um, that, that book was so monumental for me in my undergrad, and I've, I've reread it several times. I think her writing is really beautiful and really poignant, and that the character of Louise Whiteout alone, just like her immense power and, and, and strength, and I mean, she's a survivor, and it's just so beautifully written. I'm waiting for the movie. I'm like, please, someone make this a movie. Um, so, Perma Red is absolutely one of my all-time favorites. I'm also reading a lot of Joan Nevaeh Kane. She was my former professor, mentor, now friend, um, and has several collections of really beautiful poetry. And what I love about her work is there's this like staunch feminism there, but coming from an indigenous lens. And she also uses her traditional language, um, like she'll have a, a, a poem on the page and then you flip the page and it's the same poem in Inupiaq. And I think that it's so beautiful to engage in, or even though I don't speak Inupiaq, but to even just see those, like those letters on the page is uh, incredible. I love Joan of Iacane. Um, Everyone's taking notes, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Okay. And I just reread this for maybe the third time it's a novel by a native Hawaiian author called Sharks of the Time of Saviors, and it is one of my favorite books in the entire on the entire planet. It's it came out I think two years ago, um, or maybe even just last year. Time is weird now, um, but Sharks in the Time of Saviors, and it's a beautiful novel. He grew up on the Big Island. I was spending some time there with my partner, and my agent sent me this book and was like, you're on the big island right now, like, you need to read this. And it was just so beautifully done and so unapologetically indigenous in its um, theme themes, like, really digging into the recent colonization of the Hawaiian Islands, its impact that it's had on not only the Native Hawaiian families there, but the environment, and, and also just how, like, he brings in some of his Native Hawaiian legends into this very contemporary, uh, family of like native Hawaiian folks living on the big island and it's so beautiful it's my it might be my all-time favorite book mm, i love that piece around place